at a couple of vehicles. One of them was a big Dodge Ram extra long van that we affectionately called the Fam Ram or the Ram Fam, I forget which it was now. We, we also had a little sporty Chevy uh, Spectrum Turbo that I affectionately called the Silver Bullet. It wasn't until after I'd called it the Silver Bullet for about, I don't know, 400 times that half of my family, including my beloved wife, told me that the car wasn't silver at all. They came in with the opinion that the car was a shiny, tannish color. I know they were wrong. But they were stubborn about it and have never admitted it. And, and we actually did research, went to the manufacturer's site and tried to look at all the different colors of that particular model. We couldn't come up with anything conclusive. And so to this day, the family is divided right down the middle as to whether that car was silver or tan. Now the fact is that when it comes to the color of a car, perception and preference don't really matter. Whether our spectrum was silver or shiny tan doesn't make any difference at all. But when it comes to God, when it comes to life and all things spiritual, it makes all the difference that we get it right. It makes all the difference that we know the truth. Without a manufacturer's official word, we could never discern the real color of our car. But God has not left us without an official word. God has not left us in the dark. If we study the world that God has made, and if we study the word that God has revealed, we can know who God is. And we can know Him well, and we can know Him deeply, and we can know Him personally. That's why here at Risen Hope we love the Bible so much. Not because it's just this ancient book, but because it's a book that's alive and abiding, and it reveals God to us. And this is one reason why, as a church, we have just started a series called Creed, an ancient and abiding faith, a 12-part series through the Apostles' Creed. Don't, don't let this series give you the wrong impression. The Creed is not the Bible. It's not equal to the Bible. The Creed is not inspired. God's Word is inspired. Creeds can be wrong and often have been wrong. The Apostles' Creed is not some kind of infallible word from God. It is more a word from the church about God. It is a declaration of what we believe. And the Creed is a very bold declaration of what we believe. And in that regard, it is something like a, a frontal counterattack to the Sheilaism that I talked about last week. 
If you remember Sheilaism, named after a certain woman named Sheila, who said that she followed her own quiet inner voice when it came to her faith in God. And what her inner voice said is what she believed about God. Sheilaism, she called it. The creed and the Word of God are a direct counter to Sheilaism. It is not about what I feel. It is not about what I prefer. It is not about what I think. When it comes to God, my opinions really don't matter. When it comes to God, the only thing that matters is the truth. When it comes to God, it matters that we get it right. And so, we are studying the creed. And we are noticing as we begin today that the creed does something for us. It, it, it presses us to believe certain things about God. If you were to ask 100 people, do you believe in God? Probably 90 of them would say yes. But then there would be an immediate but... So their answer would go, yes, I believe in God, but not God as this. And usually what's defined there is the historic Christian faith. But God as I like Him. Or I like to think of God as, and then they fill in the blank. The trouble is that what the Bible does not allow us to do and what the creed does not allow us to do is to fill in the blank. You see, there's... there's it's important to answer the question, do you believe in God rightly? The answer should be yes. But it's also, and I think more important, to answer this question rightly, what God do you believe in? Which God do you believe in? The creed tells us, I believe, not in any kind of God in a vague kind of no-name brand variety, but I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker or creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. I believe. I believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The creed doesn't allow us to define God as we desire, but to understand God as He has revealed Himself. And so, this afternoon, we begin our look at this creed with the first article, the first statement, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Who is this God that we Christians believe in? Who is this God that Christians have always believed in? He is God the Father Almighty. What a statement of faith. What a declaration. I believe. I believe in God. I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in God the Father, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth. As we expound this this afternoon, I believe we will see this, that the Almighty Fatherhood of God, the Almighty Fatherhood of God secures our identity 
seals our unity and exalts His majesty. The almighty fatherhood of God secures our identity, seals our unity, and exalts His majesty. Please look with me at the text, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 6 in particular. I think it's interesting, or I'll put it differently. I I chose this text. There are a number I could have chosen to, to preach this set of truths. I chose this one because the text itself is very much like a creed. It is one of these early Christian creedal statements. There, there is, we, we read in, in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit. You were called in one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. This, is, this seems as if it's an early expression of faith made by Christians. And in, at the climax of this, as it builds and builds and builds, it comes to verse 6, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This, this verse, I believe, teaches us that God is God the Father Almighty. Let's, let's look at it. We see it, first of all, that He is God. There is one God and Father of all. There is one God, and this God is the Father of all. I love to think about the fatherhood of God. I love to contemplate this great biblical truth. And, and, and so let's do it together here for a few minutes. Just, just focus on this. In what sense is God the Father? But when you think about what the Bible says about God, we we learn that God is the Father, first of all, in the sense that He is the Son's eternal Father. That the Son of God was Son to the Father from all of eternity. So we have in John 17 and verse 5, Jesus praying, and now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. That's an amazing statement. Jesus of Nazareth says, Father, I can't wait to be restored to the glory I had with you before the world existed. Some people think Jesus was just a a nice teacher. I'd like to reconcile that with that claim. Jesus is saying, I existed before anything else existed. I existed before the world existed. I've always existed. In fact, I've existed with the Father in everlasting glory. And then in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, referencing Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God. Jesus has always been the Son of God. So what does that make God in relation to Him? The Father has always been the Father of the Son. 
Not in the sense that the Father brought the Son into existence. Not in a sense that the Son was created or that He was born, but in some mysterious, unfathomable way within the Godhead, within the Godness of God, there has been Father, Son, and Spirit enjoying forever communion and fellowship with each other. And the Father and the Son in a way that is a relationship of affection and love. It has always been so that God has been the Father forever. There's never been a time when God was not Father. Let that sink in. Let that sink in. There has never been a time when God has not been Father. There was a time when He was not Creator. There was a time when He was not Lawgiver. There was a time when He was not Judge. There was a time when He was not Sustainer of all things. There was a, there was a time when God was not many things. He became them when He made all things. But before all of that, before He was a Creator, He was a Father. Before He was a Judge, he was Father. Fatherhood is central to the existence of God, which is to say, being in relationship, being one who loves, is at the heart of who God is. Oh, my friends, this, this should affect everything. What, what do you think of when you think of God? What, what comes to your mind first? Is it His holiness? Is it His... God is your creator. God is this transcendent, mysterious being who does and allows all kinds of mysterious things to happen and never seems to give us a reason. And he's always just clouded in mystery and he's, he's out there somewhere. And the Bible says to us, well, he is mysterious and he is marvelous and he is glorious and he doesn't answer to us. But he is Father. He is Father. My friends, what does this say to us? How does this affect us? Can I, can I suggest, certainly it should affect how we think about God, what our first impulse should be when we get up in the morning and think about life and think about God. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank You for another day. But it should also affect how we think about ourselves. It, it, it should secure our identity. If we are those who trust in the Lord Jesus as our Savior, if we are those who believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose again for our justification, as we heard in prophetic word today, if we believe that God is the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ, then that means that we have been adopted into the family of God. That means that God is in a personal way the Father of us all. He is our Father. J.I. Packer writes, you sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. 
In the same way you sum up the whole of New Testament religion, if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly, distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish or you might say Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu or anything else, everything that distinguishes Christianity is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. I read that phrase, that last statement, when I was 18 years old, first time I read that. And it has left a mark on me ever since. Father is the Christian name for God. Read the New Testament. It's true. It's true. Father We believe in God the Father Almighty. J.I. Packer goes on to write, it's a strange fact that the truth of adoption has been little regarded in Christian history. Do I know my own identity? My own real destiny? I am a child of God. God is my Father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My Savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. Say it over and over to yourself first thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait for the bus, any time that your mind is free, and ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it is all utter, one who knows it is all utterly and completely true. For this life, indeed, it is the Christian secret of a Christian life and of a God-honoring life. May this secret become fully yours and fully mine. God is my Father. I need to pause as I probably always do when I teach about the fatherhood of God to express my heart and God's heart for those among us who, when they hear about fatherhood, do not have joyful thoughts, do not have happy thoughts. There are many who, when they hear that God is Father, are actually repulsed by it, or actually turned off by it, or actually afraid of the reality that God is Father. Why? Because their whole experience of fatherhood in this world has been bad and has been sad. They have had a father who has been harsh or cruel or absent or negligent or abusive or many other things. And so the idea that God is Father is is almost heartbreaking to some. But can can I encourage you? Don't think about fatherhood first by looking horizontally at other human beings. Think about fatherhood first by looking up at God and then measuring everyone else by Him. You see, what often happens is that we let distortion define our understanding of things. So we see a father who is distorted in his fatherhood, is, is twisted in his fatherhood, and we think, oh, that's what fatherhood is. I don't want a God who is a father, when what we should do is don't measure and define things by distortion. 
measure and define things by the one who is perfect. When you go to a circus and you stand in front of those weird mirrors and they do all kinds of crazy things to your height and to your width and, and you, know, you look at it and you say, I, I doubt any of you have ever looked at one of those and walked away thinking, I don't like myself, I'm fat and I'm, I'm a blob. You know, if you do that, then I, I would encourage you to get a different mirror first. Right? Don't, don't, don't base your identity on what you see in the circus mirror. Don't base your understanding of fatherhood on what you've seen in a human father. It's a distortion. All of our fathers, I'm a father, all of us who are fathers, all of us who have had fathers, which is all of us, we have had fathers who are imperfect, we have had fathers who are flawed, we have had fathers who have messed up. But there is one. There's one who's never messed up. There's one who's gotten it perfect. There's one who knows how to love to perfection. There is one who knows how to provide to perfection. There is one who knows how to protect to perfection. There is one who knows how to plan out and guide our lives to perfection. There is one who never leaves us, never forsakes us, and he does this to perfection. There is a Father that you can cherish. There is a Father you can love. We believe in God the Father Almighty. And May it be that every one of us will find our identity there if we are trusting in Christ. And if you're not trusting in Christ, come to Jesus. And along with the forgiveness of your sins, you will gain a Father that will bring you joy forever and ever and ever. The fatherhood of God affects how we think about God. He is Father. It affects how we think about ourselves. It secures our identity, and it affects how we think about others, especially others who are in the faith, others who share a like faith in Jesus Christ. It unites us. It binds us together. That's the point of Ephesians 4, right? Why does Paul go into this long list of all these things? There's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Why does Paul do that? Because just before that, he has said, be eager or diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, to motivate us and secure us and seal us in a commitment to unity, he tells us all the things we have in common. There is one Spirit. Every believer in this place is indwelt by the same Spirit. There is one baptism. Every believer in this place has been baptized, or at least ought to be baptized, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is one Lord whose name is Jesus. And He's Lord of us all. There's one faith that is there is one way to trust in the mercy and grace of God through Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. There is one Father. One God. One Father of us all. Therefore, Paul says, be eager to maintain unity. Why do we, why do we talk so much about unity? Because, well, we're commanded to maintain unity, and because we realize that there are pressures all the time to divide us. Why do we have grace and race conversations? It's not, it's not 
so that we can have a support group for people of color. It's, it's not so that we can have a, a shame fest for white people. It's not so that we can somehow or other make people feel guilty so they'll work at trying to get along with each other. Why do we have this? Because we believe in Christian unity. We believe that there is one body. We believe that there is one church, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, and one Father. That makes us all brothers and sisters. And that makes unity not an option. That makes fellowship not an option. Understanding the fatherhood of God means we need to get together and stay together because we have the same Father. And we're in the same family. So this truth, I, we believe in God the Father, affects how we look at God. It affects how we look at ourselves and it affects how we look at each other. Now, look at the rest of this verse so that we make sure we get in the full creedal statement I believe in God the Father Almighty. Almighty. Notice verse 6 again. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. God the Father is over all. All. Paul is speaking of his absolute, sovereign, almighty supremacy. He is over all. He is the Lord God Almighty who reigns. God the Father, Paul says, is through all. That speaks of his ever real, permeating, powerful presence that infuses us with strength, that keeps us together, that sustains us. And God the Father, he says, is in all, which speaks of His ever-present nearness and strength in everything, holding it and keeping it together. God is the source. He is the sovereign. He is the sustainer. He is the strength of all things. He is God the Father Almighty. Paul loves these prepositional phrase. I, I, these phrases, just one word, you know, he is over all. He is through all. He is in all. He does this in other places. In 1 Corinthians 8, there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods, yet there is but one God from whom are all things and for whom are all things. Those little words, they matter. Everything is from God. And everything is for God. Or as he puts it in Romans 11, from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. From Him are all things. That means, again, He is the source of all that is. Through Him are all things. That means everything is sustained by the constant infusion of God's power and God's strength. My next breath, my next sentence is through Him. 
And if he takes his hand off of me, before I finish this next sentence, I drop to the floor. Everything is through him. From him. And through him. And to him are all things. What does that mean? God is not just the source of all that is. He is the goal of all that is. God the Father is not just our origin. He is our destiny. He is not just our cause. He is our consummation. He is not just the giver of life. He is the goal of life. He is not just the original maker. He is our ultimate meaning. He is not just our almighty creator. He is our eternal aim. He is not just the one who formed us. He is the one who will fulfill us. He is not just our beginner. He is our end. God Almighty is the one from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. And so Paul closes out Romans 11, therefore, to Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. The fatherhood of God Almighty, the fatherhood of Almighty God secures our identity. We have a Father. And therefore, we're safe. It seals our unity. The fatherhood of God makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. And so let us be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And the almighty fatherhood of God exalts His majesty from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Which is why we read in Revelation chapter 4. All the creatures of heaven, all the angels and saints that dwell in the presence of God the Father Almighty never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and they worship Him who lives forever and ever and they cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for You created all things. And by Your will they existed and were created. The saints of heaven, the angels of heaven, the elders of heaven, the animals of heaven, all of them are bowing before the throne saying, we believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. So that every time we lift our voice, every time we sing, as we're going to do in just a moment, Every time we praise, we're just joining the choirs of heaven who are doing this ceaselessly, it says. They never stop saying, 
Essentially, we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. What do you believe? Do you believe in God? That's a good place to start. The question you need to really answer is, which God do you believe in? Do you believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? And are you finding in Him, finding in Him a securing of your identity? Are you finding in Him a seal for our unity? And are you finding in Him that which exalts His majesty? May God give us grace to know Him like this. And then, then our joy will be full. Let's pray.